0: Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Epiphany's podcast, a ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. For more information about our church, you can visit epiphanyligonier.org. Uh, reading the story of Abram and Sarai in the book of Genesis, as we've been doing now for a few weeks, uh, it may just be one of the most frustrating experiences you can have reading the Bible. Uh, that It is one of the most frustrating uh, sections of the Bible, because it's the portrait of two people who are truly messed up, but they are guided and loved by God nonetheless. And so some weeks we look at Abram and Sarai and we say, Gosh, what a remarkable faith they have in God's promises. They left all of their home, they left their security, they left their financial and familial safety net to follow God into a place they would never been. I wish I could have that kind of faith myself. But then the very next chapter, when we flip the page in our Bibles, we see Abram and Sarai fail so spectacularly, it's hard for us to be gracious to them, right? What the heck are you guys doing? Abram Sarai, how could you be so dumb? And uh, we already looked at one of those stories already, right? Um, We looked at this story some chapters back of how Abram conned Pharaoh uh, out of an expensive wedding gallery by passing his wife off as his sister. And today we encounter what may be a second, what is the second and maybe greater sort of facepalm moment of our um, time in the book of Genesis, It's this remarkable story, and it is one that will become the story. Um, When the New Testament wants to tell you a story of how not to follow the promises of God, this is the story that they go back to. Uh, And so what I want us to do today is approach this story not by saying, you know, gosh, I would never do something like that, you know. I mean, my goodness, thank God I'm not like those people. Thank God I'm not like Abram and Sarah, Instead, I want us to come and approach this text and realizing that our desires may be different, but we're just as prone to trying to do God's promises ourselves in ways that are remarkably similar to what's happening in our reading. So it's a different cultural context, but this idea of taking a promise from God and trying to execute it and make it happen ourselves that's what I want to show you in our reading today. And I think this may be more applicable than we would like to believe. So let's dig into our Genesis reading. Our story begins uh, 10 years after Abram and Sarai have settled into the land of Canaan. And they are taking God up on this big promise for blessing and land and children and descendants. And things have gone well for them for a while now. It's been 10 years. They're rich, uh, rich beyond mo- what most people will experience in the ancient Near East, they're prosperous. Um, they are they are growing in their wealth, and even when uh, wars are breaking out around them, God protects this family. Not only does He protect the family, but when the war draws them in, He gives them victory. Um, but one of the promises that God made to Abram and Sarai um, was that they uh, would have a son, a biological son, an heir. Because at this point, the, these two octogenarians, these two 80-year-olds, uh, they have no children. And a lot of their life has revolved around this question of children. And last chapter, chapter 15, what we talked about last week was how God came to Abram, and Abram says, look, God, he points his finger at heaven, and says, look, God, you said we were going to have kids, and we're in our 80s, where are the kids? Come on. Like, am I, am I really able to trust you in this? And God says, Look, it's not going to happen yet. It's going to happen. It's not going to happen yet. But let me put this in stark terms. And so in the ancient Near East, God and um, God draws, He does the ancient equivalent of drawing up the legal papers, sets down across the table from Abram, and says, I will give you land. I will give you a son. I will give you um, a nation. And God signs on the dotted line. That's what our reading is last week. Um, that God comes to Abram with this deep assurance, it says, "It's not happening yet, but it's going to happen." And so if Genesis 15 was Abram's kind of doubtful moment, when Abram says, "God points his finger to the heavens and says, "You made a promise," um, chapter 16 is the same thing, but this time it's Sarai's turn to have a moment. Because Sarah is equally frustrated that there is no child. She is equally frustrated that there is no heir. And so what does she do? She says, you know what, maybe we should come up with a backup plan. I have an idea. Hear me out, Abram. And so she acts on her frustration. She says, look, we can't have children for whatever reason. God has closed my womb. So why don't we try having a surrogate pregnancy? Um, here is my maidservant, Hagar. Why don't, why don't we try to have her carry our child? Because that way we'll at least have a child that has half of our DNA. And then we could have that child in the surrogate pregnancy and raise this child. And um, God's promise will be fulfilled. We'll have a child. Everything's going to work out. And in one sense, it's hard to blame her. Because it's been ten years into this grand experiment about the faithfulness of God. That at this point, they've been in the land of Canaan for 10 years. They've been saying, okay, we're trusting God, we're trusting God, God, we're trusting you, come on. And we're not getting any younger down here. Right? They're in their 80s. They were promised a kid. There is no child yet. And it's also true um, that this was not an uncommon practice in the ancient world. Um, That if you had money, and if you had servants, and if you could not bear heirs of your own biologically, it was perfectly acceptable to use one of your slaves, one of your servants, uh, to turn uh, and to have a surrogate pregnancy, to have someone else carry the child for you. So on the one hand, it's hard to blame Sarai for the suggestion, but the text does not endorse this plan from the get-go. Because here's how the text uh, records the response of Abram. What What does the text say? And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. That sounds eerily familiar to another passage in our series in Genesis. You have good Bible ears, because there's an Adam and Eve dynamic at play here, in which uh, the man is sort of presented with a promise from God and and a plan from his wife, and he chooses his wife over God. It's not to say that you don't work with your wives, guys. It's just to say that in this moment, um, we see in Abram that the, the problem of Adam and Eve has not been resolved. Um, And so what happens? Um, This is a really eerie scene, and you can see it. I put a version of this on the cover of your bulletin today. Um, There's this art motif um, that exists called um, the presentation of Hagar. And you can go online and find all of these wild paintings of an octogenarian 80-year-old white-haired woman uh, presenting this sort of young, pretty thing, this pretty young thing like Michael Jackson, pretty young thing uh, with um, often half-nude and and sort of unwrinkled skin and sort of young and buxom in, in her you know, 20s or something to another octogenarian who's in their 80s who's laying on the bed and he's got white hair and a white beard. It's just very weird is what it is. It's weird to us. It would have been weird to that world too, I think. And so, um, Again, this art motif, a lot of people painted it because it's such an odd thing to see. And um, what you get the impression of is that this is... What you remember is this is not the first time that Abram and Sarai have invited someone else into their marriage bed. It's actually the second time they've done this because um, Sarai got intimate with Pharaoh um, back a few chapters earlier. And so, uh, you know, despite the fact... Um, that there's this generations of hindsight saying, no, don't do it, this is a bad idea. And despite the sort of um, weird spouse-swapping thing that's happening here, despite the ominous tone of our text, um, the deed is indeed done. Hagar conceives, and Abram is about to become a father at the age of 86. Here's what happens. It's not quite so simple. Once Hagar has conceived, the master-servant, the master-slave dynamic between Sarai and Hagar begins to fall apart. Oftentimes, the Bible translators take a word that in the Hebrew or the Greek means slave. And because we have these ears that automatically think of 1800s uh, black Americans picking cotton, they translate it instead of slave, they say servant, because it's not the exact same thing. Um, lots of people um, were servants and slaves in the ancient world, um, but they weren't all what we would call chattel slavery. Um, and that the ancient slaves, it was it was a much more complex picture of slavery and servitude in the ancient Near East, where they they tended to not just be um, sort of workers who were exploited, but they were prisoners of war. Um, that these workers, um, these slaves, were people who defaulted on their debts and they couldn't pay back their debts, and so they entered into slavery because they couldn't pay back a financial debt to work off the debt that they owe. Or maybe they were enslaved um, for a punishment or a crime. Um, and so slavery was a punishment that could be handed down by the courts. And so when, um, when Hagar and Sarai come together here, um, when we hear that Hagar was Sarai's servant, we're not looking at sort of antebellum south, but we're also not looking at like Downton Abbey, you know, right? Those servants had a pretty good thing going at the end of the day. It was tough, but you know what? Like they got along and they had some freedoms, but, but, but it's not that either. Um, so when you look at this passage and you hear that Abram and Sarai had a slave named Hagar, you know it's sort of this ancient thing that's a little different from what we might imagine or conceive of. And in fact, some commentators were saying, and this is another common thing, that when a slave was to bear the child of their master, that slave's status was elevated. In fact, some of them be- went from being slaves to being like second wives in polygamous marriages. And so what happens here is there's some real confusion about what's happening in the, the family dynamics because um, this master-slave relationship between Sarah and Hagar begins to break down. And, um, and Hagar starts to sort of act higher than people expect her to. After all, she could be a second wife, maybe even a concubine, that has raised her status. She is no longer a simple slave. And so when Sarai goes to tell her what to do, um, she starts to get haughty and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm no slave, what are you, what are you talking about here? That's, that's, not, that's, how things, that's how things used to be, but I am carrying your husband's child. Ooh, right." And so we shouldn't be surprised to see these family dynamics breaking down. Um, in fact, uh, Hagar, Sarai comes to her husband and says, this is your fault because you haven't made a decision yet about who, what Hagar's status is going to be. And so what does Sarah, uh, Abram say? He says, she's your slave. Deal with it. And that's Abram's way of saying she's, he, she's not a second wife. She's not a concubine. She's simply your servant. Do as you please. So what does Sarai do? What does she please? Well, she actually begins to, to treat Hagar so badly that Hagar runs away. That's what happens. I mean, talk about a plan that backfires. A plan that backfires. Because they think, Sarai and Abram, think they can, they can use this woman to increase their family station and to maybe have a child. But by the end of this episode, um, this woman has run away with the child that they have hoped to have. Why? Um, Because it's the natural consequence of treating people as um, objects, as means to an end. Um, And so um, at this point, right, um, again, you don't run away from prestigious uh, position like having your child inherit Abram's massive fortune, gold, silver, livestock, servants. You don't run away unless you get treated very, very poorly unless you get beaten, unless you get told off, unless you get all sorts of uh, treated nasty. Because this child that Hagar has is set um, for life if she can just have this child and stick around. And she will be set for life if she can just stick around. So Sarah must have been quite the abuser. and So Hagar runs away. Let's sum it all up here, right? This is a few verses and a lot has happened. Sarai uh, has a plan to help produce an heir. Um, Abram agrees to it. Uh, Abram and Hagar conceive a child. Hagar starts to act above her station. Sarai gets angry. Abram says, don't involve me. Sarai abuses Hagar, and Hagar runs away. That's what has happened in our story so far. It's a real tragedy of what's happened. Because you can see in their marriage that there's tension and falling out. You can see between Sarah and Hagar everything falling apart. I mean, this truly is a mess. Um, but God intervenes. God intervenes into the literal affair. And, um, but God intervenes in a way that we may not expect. And this is part of what um, one commentator calls a hard saying of the Bible. Because you and I have grown up with stories about, like, Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad, right? You you and I have grown up with these stories about um, the abolitionist movement that encouraged and helped people to run away from the north. And this region in particular, I came across this, I'm not a native so I didn't know this, but this region in particular, Indiana County, Fayette County, Washington County, um, these were all major thoroughfares for the Underground Railroad. And I had no clue that was the case, but there are a number of uh, historic houses in this particular region where slaves were kept and they kept kind of moving up and they were informally passed up north towards Canada. In fact, you can go up to Blairsville, right up the road here, you can go up to Blairsville even today, and you can go to the Indiana County Underground Railroad Museum, and you can read about how not once, but twice, um, slave catchers came into um, Blairsville to try to find some slaves and take them back to the south and they found them there, and they started to capture the slaves. And then you can read about how not once, but twice, the town of Blairsville, Indiana formed a posse, formed a mob, and beat the tar out of the slave catchers and kicked them out of town. So like in our cultural story, when we hear about slaves running away, um, our, our, our immediate response is to take out the pom poms and cheer them on, go, 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 slavery's bad, freedom, America, that's how we do it here. And so for reasons that I don't fully understand, Um, For reasons that um, only God knows, God says to Hagar, go back. God says to Hagar, go back. There's a lot of ways we can understand that commandment. Perhaps God in heaven providentially knows something that Hagar doesn't. Maybe if Hagar went back to Egypt and everyone said, Hey, weren't you the, the, the servant we gave to Abram and Sarah? What are you doing back here? Things could end really poorly for her. Maybe Hagar has financial debt that she still owes Sarai. Maybe, um, maybe uh, uh, there's, there's just a whole bunch of reasons why we might think um, that there could possibly be a reason for God to tell Hagar to go back, even though she is being mistreated. Um, we don't know what they are. Um, the text doesn't tell us, but God does not send this slave Hagar back into slavery without her own blessing and promise. What does our text tell us? What does God say to Hagar? Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over and against his kinsmen. The name Ishmael means God has heard me. That's remarkable, um, because God gives Hagar... Um, this biological mother of Ishmael, the authority to name her child. And that's huge. Um, Because God says, you shall name him Ishmael. What does that mean? Um, Because what that means is is the the naming, right? We know this from Genesis chapter uh, 2, the naming of the animals. The naming of the thing means that you are in the superior relation to the thing. And if this child to come was truly to be a child for um, Abraham and Sarai, Abraham and Sarai, right, then they would have been the ones to pick the name. And God says, Hagar, you are going to name this child. So God intervenes and says, this is not a surrogate pregnancy. The child in your womb is not going to be theirs. This is your child. You shall name him, and his name shall be Ishmael. So that's the first part of our promise here, right? That God gives a name to this child and says, in essence, Hagar, you are the mother. So that's the first piece of God's promise, right? That this plan they had of having a Sarah pregnancy, this plan that Abram and Sarah have, this plan is falling apart, and God is the one who breaks it apart. The blessing continues on, right? Because Ishmael shall be a wild donkey of a man. At our time, donkey means stubborn, Um, it means uh, he bites and kicks, it means stupid. That's not what that meant in the ancient world. In the ancient world, right, there are still, by the way, wild donkeys in some regions of the world, and the thing about wild donkeys is they're independent, they answer to no one, you cannot domesticate them, they are about as free of any animal as you could possibly want. So when God says that, that, that Ishmael will be a wild donkey of a man, he's not insulting the man, he's saying um, that that your son, Hagar, will be free. Free and fierce. No one will domesticate him. No one will make a slave out of him. That this child of yours in the womb, even though I'm telling you to go back, this child will one day be free. And in fact, later on, we're going to see that because this child is a child of Abram, this child will indeed become a nation. This child will become a nation. He's going to be something bigger. And even though the text tells us that he will be in constant conflict with his kinsmen, he will also be separate from him. This man will do his own thing away and apart from his siblings, even though they will be in conflict. And so the blessing behind this very odd blessing that sounds to us like an insult, is the promise of freedom and independence from the people who um, really were her abusers. That's what God has. And so again, we have a promise uh, from God that is not a no, but a not yet. God's promise uh, to uh, Hagar is not, go back, because you're a slave and you need to be a slave for the rest of your life. God's word to Hagar is, go back. The time is not right for you to leave yet, and it will come. And She does. She goes back. She goes back and has Ishmael as a child, and sure enough, at her insistence, um, Abram names the child Ishmael. And so she is not told to submit to your position as a slave forever. She is told um, you will be freed. And what does what um, uh, Hagar say? She says, you are the God of seeing. Ishmael, right? Ishmael, the child. The name Ishmael means, um, God hears. And she says, not only God do you hear, but you see. You saw me, and you saw this poor little slave getting mistreated, and you have done something about it. In fact, Hagar is one of the first people in the whole of the Bible to give God a name. And that she is the one who calls him the God of seeing. And that makes her a very remarkable person, because it's a good name. It's a good name that understands the nature of God. Two quick um, observations and then we'll conclude. Um, The first is this story um, is a topical one, um, but the crux of the story is not a fad. Here's what I mean. Uh, Back in 2008, the US News and World Report um, did did some research on this particular passage um, because it was the subject of intense scholarship. Um, and the, the article was, was titled, Why Scholars Can't Stop Talking About Sarah and Hagar. And the tenor of the article is that this passage has a lot to say about some very modern issues. Surrogate pregnancies, infertility, human trafficking, misogyny, feminism, slavery, consent, polygamy, the patriarchy. It's all in this reading if you want to find it. It's all here. Um, and it's true, also, that if you are familiar with the religion of Islam, um, if you go back and look at the religion of Islam, they go back to this story right here in the book of Genesis. They go back to the book of Genesis to this story and say, yeah, you know that nation that um, that God says is going to come from Ishmael? Um, he ends up in the Arab Peninsula. He creates the society of sort of nomadic people, and that's us. That the nation of Islam counts this particular story as the birth of their people and their religion. Um, Because one day a descendant of Ishmael named Muhammad is going to go into a cave and he's going to come out with uh, the Quran. And so, um, again, there are so many things about this passage in particular that are relevant right now, right? Because, I mean, talk about being at odds with your neighbors and your kinsfolk. I mean, you can even go back and say the origin of all of our problems in the Middle East come from this passage. That's an argument that can be made. Those are all things I could have talked about today, but the text doesn't want me to spend time on them. The heart of the story, the literary heartbeat of the story, is that Abram and Sarai have this fifth, uh, fickle faith, and Hagar gets hurt as a result. That's the real uh, crux of the story, the thing that is uh, spiritually, literally present. That when it comes to Abram and Sarai's faith, they are the epitome of the uh, great Katy Perry song, right? They're hot and they're cold, they're yes and they're no. They're in that they're out, they're up and they're down. God, on the other hand, uh, remains unmoved in this whole thing. But one of the very real issues that we as Christians need to wrestle with is that when our faith is fickle, when we um, we have a fickle faith that doesn't trust God, um, the result is that we can and do hurt others. When we try to take God's promises and do them ourselves, when we trust in our own power to solve life's challenges instead of asking God to take the lead, when we ignore what God has promised and try to fight for those things tooth and nail, what will inevitably happen is that we will hurt other people. And one of the best ways, in fact, that we can love our neighbors is to become so convinced that the Christian gospel is true that our shaky faith is buttressed and we don't cause other people harm as a result, right? Um, This is the whole point of Paul's writings in the book of Galatians as he looks back at this passage and says this, Look, people of the church, you want new converts to come into faith, not just to be um, sort of carbon copies of Jewish religion and practice. Jesus changes some things here, so people don't need to be circumcised anymore. People don't need to observe kosher laws. People don't need to observe Jewish religious festivals. And so you, when you mandate, oh church, that people do this, you are harming others because you're putting a burden on them they don't need to wear. You are putting a burden on them that they don't need to bear. And so St. Paul looks back at this passage in Galatians and says, look, this is all about works. This is all about people trying to work their way into salvation and to get God's promises for themselves. And when you do that, you will hurt other people, you will break apart the body of Christ, you will ruin your reputation with people who are not Christians, and things do not end well. So one of the things that we can take away from this story is, if you want to love your neighbor be more and more convinced that God's love for you is unconditional and that his promises come true to you not because of your faithfulness but because of his faithfulness to those promises. That's the first observation. Second observation is that God can and does clean up our messes. Because Hagar in the story is the victim of an idiotic couple who try to pry God's promises out of his cosmically large and life-giving hands. And in doing so, they strain the relationships of everyone involved, right? Um, that, that there's, that between Sarah and Hagar and Abram, between these three particular characters, um, there is nothing but conflict and stress And everything starts to fall apart, and the result is that they mistreat the surrogate mother, she runs away, and then, of course, in her running away, she threatens the life of the very baby they hoped would be their solution. Hagar, despite all of her her perhaps gloating in this passage, um, as the victim of this terrible scheme, uh, the lowly and abused slave, God intervenes. And God uh, gives her. God gives this slowly, slave, this surrogate mother. Um, she uh, she receives promises from God. It's truly a wonderful thing. God has listened to her affliction um, and it promises her freedom, um, freedom from uh, and freedom for her and the surrogate son in her womb. And so, when Abram and Sarai messed up, and Hagar is the one who suffers, God still takes care of Hagar. One of the hardest human realities that we face is that our actions can deeply wound other people. And if you're like me, i.e. a human being who is relatively normal, there's some guilt and anxiety about how other people turned out after we injured them. Uh, for me, this is represented in a, in a, in a man named Tyler. Um, Tyler is now my age, but I met him on a youth group trip uh, in ninth grade. And one night, as happens on youth group trips, um, the, the, the guys would get together and they start talking. And he started to open up. He started to be very vulnerable about things he was dealing with. Um, Drugs, sleeping around, beating people up. He had a very messed up life. And I wasn't much of a Christian at the time. This was my first youth trip. I hadn't really come to understand what this Christian faith was about. And so I ended up leaving the bunk room where these guys were talking about this sort of thing and going to another bunk room because I was uncomfortable. It made me uncomfortable that they were talking like that. And so I went into that group, and I was like, guys, I, just, I had to come in here, because over in the other room they're talking about you know, women and drugs and, and alcohol and, and violence, and it just I, I couldn't do it, man. It was just too much. And um, of course, as I'm talking about this, you know, it gets spread, and the youth group begins to gossip. And on the way home, I was ended up being next to Tyler uh, on one of the vans coming home from this trip, and he looked me dead in the eye and said, um, hey, uh, a lot of people are gossiping about r- me right now. Did you start that? I said, no, of course not. No, I didn't. It was a lie. A lie to his face. And the reality is I never saw him again. I never saw him again at a youth event, never saw him at a youth retreat. Um, he, He was gone. And this happened like 20 years ago, and I still think about it. I still think about him, and this event really sits with me. And, and sure, I can say things like, you know, all high schoolers are dumb about this sort of thing, so don't be so hard on myself, and I can say, you know, you were just such a baby then as a Christian, like, look where you are now, you're not that kind of person anymore. Um, but these are worldly justifications for managing our guilt. Um, a better way to navigate our past trespasses is to say, look, God loves the people I wounded and he is taking care of them as much as he can take care of me. Um, I can't make amends to Tyler. In fact, I even, as I was thinking about it, tried to find him on Facebook to see maybe his life turned out okay and I could feel a little better about it. I couldn't find him on Facebook. Right? And so I don't know where he is right now. I don't know what is going on in his life. But what I can say, what I can recognize is that God can take care of Tyler in the same way that he took care of me, in the same way that he took care of Hagar, Um, That's something I take uh, take hope in, that my mistakes from my fickle faith um, very likely turned Tyler away from anything remotely Christian, but God is more powerful than my mistakes. God is more powerful than your mistakes, too. I don't know, for me it was Tyler. I don't know who it is for you. Maybe you made a bad business decision and a lot of people lost their jobs and that weighs on you. Um, Maybe you were like me, maybe you gossiped in the women's group and someone left because uh, of that gossip, and, and, and you can't reach out to say you're sorry. Maybe you're in recovery, and you'd like to make some sort of amends to someone, but part of what the 12 steps say is that you can't reopen old wounds in making amends. And so you've got this sort of ex-toxic romantic partner you want to make amends to, but the, the 12 steps say, no, don't do it. Each of us, I think, in this room has some kind of regret on their hearts and minds about how we have treated others in the past. And see in this reading, friends, a God who can save you, but also clean up after your messes. Um, Sure, Abram and Sarai are forgiven of their sins, but look at the tangible, miraculous way that God intervenes here. It's just a real joy to know that, um, to quote a Christian singer I enjoyed, that this too shall be made right, that the promise of God as given to us is that um, at the end of time, all of these kind of things will work themselves out and we'll discover that God is active and working in their lives as much as he is ours. And that um, while, of course, some of this the forgiveness of sins happens now, and a lot of these things will be corrected in the world to come, what we find in the return of Jesus is that uh, we can experience this healing and restoration even now on earth. And that's a promise that God gives for us, that all things will be Rectified at the very end. So, in conclusion, I want to fast forward to Genesis 21. I'm going to conclude the story of our uh, new friends, Hagar and Ishmael. Because um, after Hagar returns to Abram and Sarai, we don't hear about her for another uh, maybe five chapters or so. Um, She remains with them for another 13 years. Presumably, the peace is kept. Everything works out. Ishmael grows up. But then a big change happens. And Abram and Sarah's family. And after 13 years, Sarah and Hagar go at it again. Um, and, and so this time, Sarah demands to Abram, she says, Get them out. I'm done with them. No more. Sarah says to, to Abram. And Abram at first says, What are you talking about? This is my son. And at this point, Ishmael is 13, right? So he's just becoming a man in Jewish tradition. He's taking on these things. And so Abram is presumably involved in this process and treating Ishmael like a firstborn son. Um, and so he's like, I don't want to do that. And so Sarah and Abram get into a fight, but then God intervenes and says, no, um, let them go. Um, they weren't, uh, this, this whole thing is the result of your mess. I will take care of them. They're going to be just fine without you. In fact, they're going to get a nation themselves. And Abraham says, Okay. He gives um, Hagar and Ishmael food and water and frees them. He doesn't give them much food and water because not long after that they find themselves uh, out of food and water and, and in the middle of the desert. God rescues them and God guides them to Egypt where Ishmael finds himself a wife. And things end up pretty well. For Hagar and Ishmael, because they are released and freed from Abram and Sarai. And God takes this whole sordid affair um, and brings something good out of it for the people who were deeply wounded. So, the more we linger on this awful tale and see how blind and terrible Abram and Sarai were to Hagar, we're given two choices here. Do we look at this tale full of disgust and pride because this ancient duo were uniquely awful? Or do we look at this tale and do we sigh in relief? Because God isn't lying when he says he works with sinners. I commend to you the latter of those two interpretations. See this morning, friends, the God who loves and works with both the victims and the victimizers, the masters and the slaves, the broken who are in power and the broken who are marginalized. See the God whose grace and mercy, bought on the cross of Calvary, covers the sins of the worst of us, and see the God who goes even farther as to clean up the messes we make. That is the God we worship this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania.